Waiting for Seconds is a podcast that talks about subjects of self-harm, suicide, eating disorders, and other personal subjects. If you don't feel comfortable listening to this podcast alone, listen to it with someone important to you. May that be a teacher, a parent figure, or someone you feel comfortable being with. Please enjoy the rest of the episode. This is Waiting for Seconds, the interview podcast where we meet people, ask them who they are, and why they are. I'm Malcolm Outkilt, and I'm here with Shannon Miller. Today we'll be talking with Joe Underhill. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. My name is Joe Underhill. As they just said, I'm a teacher and vice principal at Auburn Adventist Academy. Um, I spent some time uh, growing up in the state of Michigan, and then had a little time in the wilderness that was known as Nebraska finally living here in Washington for the last eight plus years. Um, Been a youth camp worker, spent over 20 years doing that. A lot of hobbies, love being outdoors, sports. I write on baseball for the Internet Baseball Writers Association of America. I have a phenomenal sense of humor centered on sarcasm. Um, Enjoy playing games, blacksmithing, forging blades, um, lots of great stuff. So glad to, to be here with you guys. Yeah, I'm glad you could make it. Uh, I knew Joe. Uh, I've known him for quite a while. I first know him as my teacher. Uh, he was in my high school career uh, for all of it, just about. And uh, over time, he went from just my teacher to a mentor and a friend. Uh, I worked two years with him up at Sunset Lake Camp, and then he's taught me many life lessons, and I'm just, I'm just happy you could be here, buddy. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, as you probably know, we've got a couple of questions that we wanted to ask you, uh, some simple things and some that are a little bit more complex. But uh, I'd love to get started off with, you're an older man, to say that politely. Uh, <laughs> you have kids. Yeah, it's kind of a scary thought. Uh, yeah. Getting getting close to 40, not usually when you start a family, but, um, you know, family is huge. It is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of those things that we all seek family in some way. And uh, as Shannon can tell you, I, I have preached for a long time that we can't choose blood, but we choose family. Mm-hmm. And, and so... When the opportunity came, um, we had a family member that was in a situation where they uh, were pregnant and weren't going to be able to take care of the baby. Um, For my wife and I, it it was a no-brainer that we would step into that role as we were in a financially stable position Mm. um, and be able to provide that parent structure for this child. Um, You know, you sit there and you think, for me, I'd been been involved in, in schools and kind of looking at each of my students as one of my kids. People would ask, you know, well, don't you want your own family? I said, well, no, I've got 200 of them. I don't, why would I need to add another one into my household? Um, and so I, when we started the adoption process, I was expecting there to be this, this revelation, like this is going to be completely different. This is going to blow your mind. And it hasn't um, on that level. Uh, it's amazing how quickly um, a baby can wrap themselves around your heart, uh, where, where you would walk through fire itself to to protect that child. Um, but for me, it was just like, oh yeah, here's I, I'm taking this one from from infancy. We we got our little guy um, just a couple days after he was born, and mm-hmm. so we had him uh, now almost a full year. He'll be one year old in like 10 days. So, uh, and it's been a whirlwind. You don't sleep, you don't, you know, and, and you're like, Oh, that's okay. Yeah. No big deal. Um, what's, what's a full nights of sleep. You don't need that. It's overrated. (laughs) Do it when you're like 25. It's a, you bounce back a lot better, uh, from, from not sleeping for, you know, nights for like a year long without sleeping, Mm -hmm. but uh, a little, little trickier as you get a little older, but 
Uh, family's huge, man. It is, it's, it's one of the things that gives us purpose in life and, al- and allows us to maximize the God-given potential that we each have. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that, that's like choosing your own family. Uh, is there more than just your kid? You mentioned your other kids you at your school. Are those, yeah, so- would you call those similar to family? Is that feel like a different connection? For me, it's family. To me, it's all the same. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have watched the Fast and the Furious series. Mm. Uh, um, of I, I really, yeah, <laughs> Shannon's is the course. Well, I got, I, I don't know. I, have to, I don't know. I have to, you know, preface that. Yeah. But uh, Dominic Toretto, there's a, a, a space there. Um, he's like, where, you know, he's asked, like, where's all your friends? You don't have any friends. And he goes, I don't have friends. I have family. And it's a group of people. And, and, yeah, you know, his sister is in there, but everybody else is not. Yeah. Uh, and it's they're they're bound by their experience, they're bound by being um where they are within society. And so for me, my job has been in other words, I guess the way I, I view my job as an educator is to build family and to say you can have that close knit unit um and i guess the other thing you have to ask yourself is is what does it mean to be to to have family what is what does Mm -hmm. family mean and to me family is that group who's going to have your back the group who's going to call you out when you're wrong um who's going to have the the guts to stand up to you and say you're out of line right now um that's going to be there when things are great and it's going to be the first to show up when everything has gone absolutely as, as bad as possible. And it's not going to matter. They're going to be there no matter what. And for a lot of people growing up, I didn't have a really strong family group outside. Um, my dad wasn't real involved in my, my childhood. Um, my mom and I clashed on, on a lot of levels. Uh, there was multiple years between my brother and I, so that we weren't close, you know, growing up. And so you had to look elsewhere to find that. And in our world, you, you see the gang life and, and you ask, why do people want to go and join a gang? Because a gang becomes family mm. and it doesn't mm. matter what's going on. They'll bleed for you. They're, they're ready to go and die for you. And well, that's kind of what we all want. Um, the military creates that bond as you go through training, um, through boot camp and through your, your specialized training, and you become this, this cohesive unit where it doesn't matter if you agree with that person next to you, what their ethics are, what their morals are, what their religion is, what their orientation is. When you're in that foxhole with that, that person, it doesn't matter they're going to jump on the grenade for you and you're going to jump on the grenade for them uh, because you've become a unit. You've become that, that familial, have that familial tie. And so as I've worked in, in schools and I've worked camp over the years, for me, it's if, if somebody is looking for that and wants to, to vest into a family, then they're welcome to come in. There's no um, blocks to that. Anybody is, is welcome. That's the way I look at it. And if you want to be in, you're in. And so I've, I've got a number of uh, former students. I have some current students who have said, yeah, no, we, we want to be in that family. We want to be connected there. And um, that door is always open for those people. And so um, I'd have to actually sit and count. <laughs> I haven't done that. But there's, there's probably about six or seven kids to this point. I call them kids and none of them are kids anymore. Um, they're all adults. Um, a number of them are done with college or are in that age bracket now. Um, but it's still mom and dad, even mm. though they have biological parents. Um, and many of them still love their, I mean, they love their biological parents that, you know, there's not like their biological parents have kicked them out of the house or something. Um, but there's, there's a different level of family unit that's been created. Um, and that's simply the environment of we have each other. We're going to protect each other. Uh, we're going to do life together and be there to support each other throughout. I find that idea really interesting because I've seen that kind of a concept a lot before, but when I normally see it, it feels very 
ungenuine and like the corporation I was working at told me that we're family. <laughs> we're not. They don't care. Right. But you seem like you I, I want to know how you make it feel so genuine to those kids who like it really is family. I think it's 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 gonna sound kind of cliche. Mm. But if, if you actually care about them at that level, then you don't have to convince them of anything. Hmm. Um, I genuinely care. And so uh, I'm sarcastic as I'll get out. Um, I can, you can and, and Shannon can attest to this. I can be kind of kind of I can be hard on people. Mm. Uh, but when it gets to the end of the day, I think they realize that I will always stick up for them that it doesn't matter what kind of situation they find themselves in. I will be there and I'm going to be there to support them. Um, you know, sometimes that means I get a call or I've gotten a call at, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. Hey, I, I got myself in a bad spot and I need to get out of here. I can't drive myself home right now. Can you come and get me? Yep. Where are you at on the way? And there's no, you know better. You know you shouldn't have been doing this. No, I got you. Um, and it's it's funny because you talked about corporation and, and so many of our companies, they realize that if if you feel like you're in a family environment, you're going to do better work. Mm. Um, and so a lot of companies try to throw out the, we're family, yeah, and make me money or else. And there's you can't your family and that's just all there is to it it doesn't matter if if you are a contributor or if you're a leech it doesn't you are you're there you're a part and so how does how does it feel genuine it's it has to be and it, it starts from the beginning you have to to generally choose to care about these people um as much as you care yourself you make it feel genuine just because it really is yeah because you can't, you can't make it genuine. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, either, you either are or you're not. Now, um, is this a reflection of like your own family and um, just like your biological family? As in, since you didn't have such a great childhood, uh, that you are trying to give back to maybe what you didn't get? To a degree. Um, growing up, my dad wasn't very involved. Um, Right. He he had grown up with an alcoholic and abusive father. And so my my dad worked very hard to ensure that we had everything we needed um, as a family. But I think he was almost afraid to invest in too much because he was afraid of doing what his dad did. And he didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't have a role model to to look at and say, OK, this is how you're supposed to be a dad. Um, he cared very deeply. And I realize that now as a, you know, almost 40 year old, I didn't as a 10 year old. Um, the extended family is messy. I think would be the nice way to put it. Mm. Um, and so never close with any of the aunts or uncles or grandparents. Um, one grandparent died when I was 10, she had cancer. And so she died early. That was the one who had been most um, involved in our, our family life. Mm. And so, um, there really wasn't anything outside of, of our own little, you know, nuclear niche. And I don't think, I guess for me, I have a very broad, when it comes, when it comes to family, it's significantly bigger than just that, that one small unit. Uh, and so I have tried to, as a kid, I needed other people to, to step in. And I was very fortunate to have a number of individuals who kind of stepped into that um, parenting role, role model, mentor, um, and to give me guidance as I moved through my adolescence and into early adulthood. And so as I work in the school, work at camp, um, if I can be that kind of a role model for somebody else, that's what I'd love to do. Mm. Uh, so my experiences as a kid definitely contribute to the way I view life moving forward and the way I, um, and it's, you know, there's a, there's always a conversation about nature versus nurture. And I think that we can become, we can play the victim with nature and nurture and it's not one or the other necessarily. It's how you respond to those things. 
And we each have that opportunity to respond and how we respond is what is going to shape us. That's interesting. Put aside the formation of oneself via those and be who you want to be. Is that a fair way to put it? I think, yeah, part of it is, is be who you want to be. It's be intentional about the, the different experiences. Hmm. Um, you know, you are, we're hardwired and that's, that's a personal belief that we're hardwired for family. Um, okay. we are hardwired to want somebody else to experience and journey life with us. Um, and not just on like a romantic level, but just on a, we want to have somebody to journey life with, do life with, uh, we're social critters. Um, and so that's a nature element, right? We don't have any, we're just, that's kind of seems to be relatively innate. Um, and we can become just a slave and say, well, I just, I, and, and just throw ourselves at any person who's willing to, to, you know, give us the time of day and put ourselves in bad situation after bad situation. And well, nature says I have to have people around me, so I'm just going to find somebody. Um, or nurture says, well, you know, I grew up, um, in an abusive family, so I have to become abusive. And you get to the opportunity to be a cycle breaker. And that's, that's what my dad was. My dad was a cycle breaker. Um, he broke a cycle of, a, of a physical abuse within a family and he wasn't. And so I get the opportunity as a dad to take the next step. Hmm. Um, I get to be present and be intentional in, in how I'm involved in my son's life. Um, because my dad broke the cycle, so I don't have to break a cycle now. I get to create a cycle that becomes a, a positive thing. Um, nurture would say, well, he should have just been an alcoholic abuser like his dad was. Well, we have that opportunity. Those both nature and nurture greatly impact how we, how we experience life. But to just simply say, well, it's, I can't do anything about it. I'm just the ship out on the sea being thrown around. That's, I don't buy that. I, I think we have a, a rudder in life and we can use those things that nature and nurture um, to become the people we want to be. Um, and there are things, there are some things that, that can make it more challenging, but it's how we choose to respond to the nature and the nurture rather than just nature and nurture itself that yeah. where we go. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's a, a very well thought out worldview and, uh, well, thoughts on nature and nurture. <laughs> uh, but I want to ask, and maybe this is a, a little bit of a strange question, but how did you, obviously your father broke the cycle, but was there some point where you realized that he really was breaking the cycle and that he really was loving and caring, even though it never really felt like it when you were a kid? Yeah. So when I was in college, um, I'm a first generation college graduate. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you talk about changing cycles. Uh, and in education, you have to do a number of psychology classes, child development classes and stuff like that. Yeah. And so as you're going through those, it's you kind of sit there and you're like, oh, I wonder how, how does this apply in what I've experienced? How does this apply in what I've experienced? And you get some of those aha moments and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, I remember very clearly um, at the, the graveside service for uh, my dad's father. So for my grandpa, my dad's side, mm -hmm. um, I was, I think, 17, 17, almost 18 at that point. So almost done with, uh, with, with high school. And you could, I, can, I remember seeing on my dad's face, uh, my, my grandpa was a World War II vet. And so they're, they're doing the, the, the 21 gun salute there and him, him cringing on each shot. And you could see in his face that he was experiencing his childhood. And the, the regrets from childhood, the pain from childhood, the things that he had never addressed with his dad before his dad passed away. And it's too late now. It's uh, you, there's nothing you can do. It's <laughs> you're at the graveside. Right. And looking at my brother and I, 
I think at that point for him, he said, okay, when I've got all this resentment, all these different emotions and feelings here at, at this graveside, what are my kids going to feel when they're standing at my graveside? And at that point, my dad started to do things differently, um, which just made me angry because he started investing in my brother who was six years younger than me. And so take him out to teach him how to do something, you know, working on a car or uh, doing stuff in the wood shop or whatever. And I was just livid because I'd wanted to do all these things and my dad had never taken the time to do it. Um, he worked very, very hard. But getting into the psychology classes, you begin to sit there and say, oh, okay. When you are trying to not do something, okay, and you don't understand what makes a person become abusive looking back and understanding psychology i can understand where my grandpa came from he spent 24 hours in the water with his shipmates being eaten by sharks while they were being strafed by japanese airplanes um it's enough to mess with your mind for for a fair bit and um he walked out of the hospital and um uh, you know in 1944 well, we don't understand what PTSD is, and we don't understand what emotional trauma is. We say, suck it up. And what most people do is they go and they drown their, that scarring stuff in a bottle, which is what my grandfather did. And when you're drunk, you don't think well. And so you tend to lash out. And that's what took place. Now, my dad doesn't understand that as, as a young parent. This is what he just knows. This is what took place in my childhood. And I don't want my kids to experience that. And so my dad didn't drink and he didn't abuse us. Um, but if I'm close to somebody, I might lash out if I get mad. So what do I do? Well, I just, I distance myself. I work really hard. Um, my work ethic comes from my dad. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, he worked incredibly hard. And so... Being in school is beginning to understand how we develop, how the brain develops, how do we um, function within our development cycle. That's where I was able to identify, okay, these are the different aspects that were going on. And once you begin to identify it, I, the, the anger and resentment that I had had toward my dad um, went away. And it was a, okay, no, he gave me a huge gift because he broke a cycle of violence and you, you look at families where you have generation after generation of domestic violence and of abuse that takes place. And it's from one to the next and you hear the kid, I'll never be like you. And, and 15 years later, they're doing the exact same thing. Um, you have to have a lot of willpower to say, I'm, I am going to do something different and then actually do something different. It doesn't mean you do it perfectly. Um, and so since that point, my dad and I have had a much better relationship. Um, the unfortunate side has been, I've been away <laughs> really since high school. I, I haven't been back, um, in that, that area, but, um, you know, my dad was able to give me some good advice, uh, with having a baby and, and a lot of it centered around some things that he didn't do that he, um, would have done if you had gotten a second go at it, um, which I think is really, you know, that un beginning to understand, okay, do you, I understand why I did what I did, but it could have been different. It could have been better. Um, I get the opportunity to do better. As you're trying to break through these uh, things that your parents did, it, I can imagine it's, it's super stressful. Because you, you sometimes it's yeah. easier to, huh? I don't think I don't think it's that stressful personally. Um, it's it's you do or you don't. Um, stress is an interesting thing. Like stress is good. Mm -hmm. Stress is important. Why do we exercise? Well, if you exercise, you stress your heart. Well, that's what makes it stronger. Um. Stress can be a bad thing. It can be a crippling thing. But it doesn't 
I think stress is a good thing. You need to have it in, in manageable amounts. Um, so yeah, no, um, I, I would say that, that navigating this, this idea of family and now being a dad of a one-year-old, um, and how do I do that? Um, I don't know that I would say it's stressful, honestly. Mm. Um, it is, it's different. Um, I haven't played, I haven't done this, you know, I haven't played this game before. This is, this is new. Um, you know, I don't have a, oh yeah, here's the guaranteed method to, to do, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm making stuff up left and right. But, um, I personally don't find it stressful. And I, and I think it's not stressful for me because I've put the entirety of the process in God's hands. Mm. And so, um, you know, somebody had mentioned worldview a little bit earlier, how the family sits with worldview. I, I look at worldviews through that lens with God as well. And God says, you're all my family. And I have dedicated my life and said, okay, my life is in God's hands. And if God says jump, I'm going to jump and I'm not going to worry about what happens afterward. And that's a freeing thing. It's also a terrifying thing sometimes. Um, you know, Peter walks on water and then realizes, okay, wait a minute. These are 20 foot waves going on here. And, <laughs> and I'm in the middle of the, the ocean, like, holy crap, what did I just get myself into? Um, but at the same time, when he stayed focused on God, he was walking on top of that water um, in the middle of, of a storm that made seasoned sailors panic. And so for the adoption and, and going into parenthood, um, I didn't think that I would ever be a parent of a small child. I didn't think that's what God had had in line for me. But when the situation happened where we were going to step into that, uh, that parenthood element, um, both my wife and I said, okay, no, we're both feeling God saying, do this. And so I said, okay, if God, if you're telling us to jump, we're jumping and I'm not going to sit here and, and stress and worry about all the different things that are going on because you said jump. And if you said jump, that means you have a plan to see this all the way through. And I'm going to trust in that plan 110%. And I'm going to do everything in my power to follow your plan and to do my part. You know, trusting that God has a plan doesn't mean you sit around and do nothing. Um, you need to be active as well. But it means that you do your best and then you don't worry about if there's a gap after that. Uh, because God's going to take care of that gap for you. And that's the, the worldview that allows me to not be stressed. Um, and there's plenty of opportunity to be stressed. It's, it's an adoption. It's had some challenges to it. Um, lawyers are really expensive, by the way, just in case you guys didn't know that. Um, I think we're getting close to spending $15,000 on, on legal and lawyer stuff for this adoption. Oh, my goodness. Um, which is a little bit nuts. But... Uh, and so there have been times where, where I'm sitting there and there comes the lawyer bill and you're like, okay, so do we pay rent and utilities or do we pay the lawyer bill? Uh, kind of need both of those pay. And God has provided every single time. Uh, we haven't come short. And when you have those experiences, and I've had a number of those in life, um, especially when I first got out of college where I lived on 79 cent pasta um, I picked a church because they did potluck every Sabbath. So it was like, okay, I know I'm going to get one meal, one full meal a day. Great. And you look back and you say, gosh, those, the, those are tough experiences, you know, not having enough money to, you know, having a bank account that says zero and literally like do a little odd and end job to get a couple of dollars to be able to pay your portion of the rent, um, to get by. It's not, it's not a fun way to go, but it has created the environment of where I am now where I can sit there and say, okay, well, I know what God has done in my past. I don't need to stress right now because I know it's going to get taken care of. Uh, not, not having to worry about what's going on is, is a really awesome thing. <laughs> Have you always been religious? Yeah, I, I grew up that way. Uh, grew up going to church with my mom. My dad didn't didn't do church um, when I was a kid. Um, I had a period in my 
early teens where I kind of questioned whether or not I wanted to be, if I was going to be in or out with God. Got to a really kind of a, a tough place in life and had those questions. Um, I, I was at a spot where I didn't feel like I was loved or cared for and, and didn't feel like I had, I guess, that family connection. Like it just, it didn't, it felt like I was kind of sitting there running solo and I'm like, this sucks and it's not worth it. God, why, what, what is, what's, what is this? Um, I've told you to get out of my life. I don't want anything to do with you. Um, so what, what is the purpose of living then? And just have this reoccurring kind of voice, I guess, if, if you will, in the back of my head, I don't think it was an audible voice. I was at home alone. So who knows? Um, but the voice just said, I've loved you. I always have, I always will. And, you know, asking these questions, you know, why is this this way? Why is that this way? And, you know, this isn't fair. And it was just not answering the question, just the statement, I love you, I always have, I always will. And realizing that that there's lots of junk that's going to go on in life, but you always have somebody that's there with you who cares about you more than you can imagine. And... um so that's when I, I kind of rededicated my journey to God, our journey in life with God. Uh, and it is, it's easily the single most important thing that I chose to, to do in my adolescent life, um, early high school life. Um, because otherwise, what's the purpose? Why, why go through all this stuff? Because um, there's lots of heartache that you're going to run into in life. There's lots of challenges that you're going to run into in life. And if there's not a bigger purpose for it, that's tough to deal with. Yeah. And uh, uh, this might be a little bit presumptuous, but does it feel like God could be referred to as family for you? A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I do. I, that's the way I look at it. It's like the, the bigger brother <laughs> mm. um, that's there. That's a part of it. Um, you know, people talk about prayer life and I, I think some have this, you know, like vision in their mind, like, okay, I need to kneel down and, and close, you know, close my eyes and fold my hands and this whole written ritual routine. And I, that's not the way I go about prayer. Um, prayer is a daily conversation. Uh, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, in today's world, you know, when I grew up, we didn't have smartphones and all that other stuff. So, you know, and today, I mean, it's, it's how many of us have, you know, chat conversations going on with friends throughout a day. I probably just about everybody does where you're sending text messages and, and, you know, or Snapchats or Instagram messages or whatever. And it's just, it's constant. It's, you don't have this, it's not formal. You're not writing formal letters to these people. They're not like, hello, Shannon. I had this question today or, you know, hi, Malcolm. Today is, we don't do this formal mm -hmm. stuff in, in, a, in a chat or anything like that. It's just a, hey, what did you think of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's the way I kind of view that communication with God. It's not a formal, I have to, to, to follow and check all these boxes to, to be able to do it. Um, it's just the same thing as, as sending a quick text message to somebody um, as you're going through something. Now, you're, from what it sounds like, your worldview is, is mostly just look at God and see what he's got next for you, correct? Yeah, I think that's that's a way you definitely a way you could put it. It I would say it is a worldview that's that's driven by belief that God has a purpose and is intimately connected in the outcome of my life, and it is my purpose um, to try to reach that goal that God has for me. You're not you're not spiritual in any other way besides mostly just Christianity. Correct. That's okay. yeah. I would, I would, you know, the I think it's C.S. Lewis is the greatest greatest cause of uh, atheism in the world is Christians who profess with their mouth um, belief in God. I'm paraphrasing pretty terribly, and then deny him with their actions. Um, I would definitely say that my worldview is Christian, 
but that means that it's less denominationally tied and rule and ritual um, connected. It is see what, what you see in scripture. What does that look like for Jesus? Try to do that in your own life. Um, I think sometimes Christianity as a collective whole gets too focused on rules and gets hyper-focused on, um, well, my denomination is right and your denomination is wrong. And you, you look at what Christ does in the Gospels and he completely flips what is traditional religion on its head constantly. And he says, you guys don't understand. This is not what it's about. It's about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's about loving God above all else. And then everything else kind of works itself out. But if you run, if you filter everything through loving God and loving people, then you don't have to worry about things. And so that's the way I would say that I, I filter my, my Christianity through. It's the, uh, the filter of, of you need to be, if you're going to take the name Christian, that means you're going to try to be like Christ. And what did he say? Well, he didn't run around saying, here's the 697 rules to follow Jesus. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, cool. I can figure that out. Sometimes it's hard to love that idiot who just cut me off on the road. Um, but does exactly what he's saying I need to do. Um, it's kind of hard to love that person who's, you know, not very lovable, but that's what he says I need to do. And so that's what I strive for. I fail at it constantly. Um, but that is, that is my objective. I mean, ultimately it's really hard to be like Christ because I mean, yeah. he was Christ. Exactly. <laughs> but hey, if now, you don't have a, if you don't have a lofty goal, you can't reach it, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, with uh, your worldview filtered through uh, Christianity, do you tend to be an optimist or a, or a pessimist? Uh, I'm an optimistic st- pessimist and a pessimistic optimist. Do you want to expand upon that a little bit more? <laughs> I sit there in the middle. Um, I think that a term that I, that I've kind of like is realist. Um, I do look at, at, at a fair number of things with an optimistic view. Um, and then I look at some things and I'm like, all right, look, I teach history. History is cyclical. You see things, themes that are, are, are repeated. Um, I, I already know what's going to happen here. Like I don't need to, to see it again. Let's, let's be real about the situation. Uh, the Detroit Lions are always going to be a terrible football team. I'm still going to root for them. I'm still going to support them. They're still going to suck. Uh, they're going to be just good enough to get your hopes up, and then they're going to implode and do terrible things. So, um, and is that pessimistic, or is that 60 years of, of you know, fertility or futility being demonstrated? Um, so, I don't, I don't fit either of the optimistic or pessimistic category well. Um, I end up sitting in both of those camps, depending on the situation, uh, which is why I like to call myself a realist because I have a real view of life. unlike everybody else who's confused. (laughs) Well, uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, a moment or two that was really impactful to you, but I want to know what is, what do you feel was most impactful? there one moment that really did it in your life change to you? You know, we talked a little bit about that moment that I had with God um, mm-hmm. in, in the early high school range. I don't remember exactly how old I was at that point. Uh, that, obviously, that's the most impactful life altering. And then another that was really huge, uh, I've worked summer camps. I, I really love working summer camp. It's a ton of work, but it is super fulfilling and a ton of fun. Um, a lot of the, the skills that I have picked up in life, um, I picked up working camp. Um, but I, I'm doing uh, the full summer for the first time. I had done like three or four weeks uh, a year or two before. And I uh, get to my midsummer review, and I, I think I'm doing really good. Um, 
kind of a cocky 19 year old at this point and just turned 19 and my boss who's doing my midsummer evaluation um this is all he had to say for me at my midsummer evaluation joe you need to learn how to shut up i'm like okay that's that's it like dude like i'm like really good and he's like you you know a few things but you need to learn how to shut up and listen to other people because you don't know everything yet. And it was super important for me. Uh, I've got that type A personality. I'm a very, very confident individual. Even when I have no idea what in the world I'm doing, I will fail with confidence. Um, and I'm, I am a, a natural leader. I naturally take charge of situations. I naturally um, end up in that kind of a position. And professionally it's made a gargantuan difference because I, I learned at that point. Cause I mean, that's it's kind of a gut punch when your, your boss tells you for your, your midsummer review that you just need to learn how to shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, that I needed to be very intentional about hearing the people around me because they had things to teach me. Even if I knew a lot, even if, if you looked at the grand scope and said, okay, well, I actually know more than this person does. That might be true, but I can still learn something from them, which means I need to actually stop and be intentional about hearing what they have to say. And so I wouldn't be a, a, a vice principal right now if I hadn't had that conversation. Um, for the last, and I don't actually know how many years, six, five, six, seven years, I've been the um, assistant director for the camp. I wouldn't be in that role if 20 years ago, Scott Baker didn't tell me, Joe, you need to learn how to shut up. Um, and so I would say that that probably had, you know, one of the biggest impacts on my life because it was somebody I looked up to. It was somebody who had stepped in and had been a mentor to me. Um and I had known for quite a while before this point, I, I had known him for almost six or seven years. And so he'd kind of stepped into that, um, that father mentor role. Um, and so hearing that from them, like, okay, well, what does that mean now? Um, it's, it's had a huge impact on my life. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so that that moment, and then then working camp that the the summers I worked camp as a uh, eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old were were super super impactful in where I am in life, uh, from the confidence and skill sets. Um, I came in to to doing summer work uh, with a, a a wide, a very shallow but wide skill set. And those were, were greatly deepened and sharpened. I worked with another individual, um, name was Ed, great guy. Um, he's a person that I've aspired to try to be like, uh, in my, my life guy was a walking encyclopedia. Um, there was nothing mechanical he couldn't fix. I mean, he knew all the codes for electrical stuff and plumbing stuff and construction. And he'd listen to your car and be able to tell you what was going on with your engine. Um, and you're like, how do you know that? You, it sounds like every other car is running. He's like, no, you, you have a, this gasket's it's starting to get loose. Okay. Um, and of course he was right. Um, knew how to do everything. Like I I don't never ran into something that Ed didn't know how to do. And yet he was the most humble person I've ever met. Never cocky, never arrogant about knowing everything, even though he did. And so you you would sit there on a project, you were working with Ed and uh, be like, okay, well, he'd be like, well, guys, what do you think you want to do? And we're all like, we had no idea. I'm 19 years old and an idiot. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. And it just was always uh, eliciting our opinions, getting our, our perspective. And um, whenever we would break something, which unfortunately did happen a few times um, while I was there, he would, uh, 
and I guess to understand this, you have to understand a little like a, a picture of who Ed, Ed was. It's about six foot three, um, balding, kind of white hair on the side, uh, big wire rimmed glasses, kind of a little bit hunched over, and a permanent scowl on his face, and looked like somebody who was about to eat you for lunch. Like that was his resting standard look. And so you're a very intimidating kind of a, a, a person. Mm-hmm. And you'd break something. And it happened a couple times. I broke in, had to go to Ed and say, okay, I broke this. And he'd go, what are you that for? Don't kill me, Ed. I'm sorry. Come here. I'll show you how to fix it. And that was his approach. Every time you did something wrong or you screwed something up, he'd sit there and stop whatever he was doing, his project that he was working on. And he never fixed it for you. But he walked along side by side with you as you fixed and taught you how to do what you needed to do to fix the problem that you created. And I said, that is what I want to be as an educator. That's what I want to be as a dad. I want to be the person who comes alongside you and maybe gives you a little bit of a a hard time. Okay, why would you do that? That was kind of dumb. But here, let me walk next to you as I teach you how to fix your mistake. I'm not going to fix it for you, but I'm going to teach you how to fix it. And guess what? I never broke the same thing twice. Um, But if I did, I I knew how to take care of it. And that, so those, those are the most probably impactful experiences that I had in my life. Um, Working with Ed and Scott and doing, doing summer camp. Um, Because it teaches you a lot. So how exactly do you try to be like Ed? Is it just uh, trying to understand, but also help people be better? Or are there more actionable? It's it's a, to me, I think it's a mindset of every interaction you you have. Um, You know, the the alternative, we had a kid that at one point who, you know, you you have a a number of people you're supposed to have on golf carts, right? And he decided to put, I don't know, like 15 or 16 people on this stupid golf cart. Of course you broke it, right? Because, I mean, the golf cart's not intended to have 16 people. It's too much weight for the the axis on, or the, uh, the axle on it. And he was trying to hide the fact that he had broke the cart. And I was like, Ed's going to look at this tomorrow because it's Ed. And he's going to be able to tell you exactly how many people he had on there. And he's going to figure out it's you and you're screwed. You should just go tell him that you broke it. No, 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 no. He'll never figure it out. Okay, whatever. Next morning. Why is this golf cart broken? Everybody's quiet. I bet you they had 16 people on this stupid golf cart. Snicker. I'm finding out who is on this golf cart. Hour later, kid's name, who will be not used to protect their guilt. Mm-hmm. You're never touching a golf cart again the rest of this summer. And he didn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. So there's, there's consequence element there knowing that I had broken stuff being stupid. I'd gone to Ed and said, okay, I broke it. I was dumb. I didn't, I didn't think this through. I'm sorry. How do I fix this? And I never got punished for breaking it. Uh, I was taught how to fix whatever I broke. Uh, so as I, I go into a conversation and as vice principal, one of the, my responsibilities is dealing with discipline. And so I have two approaches that, that I take as I walk into a conversation with a student um, who has done something outside of the rules. The first is a question of how do I restore this child back to full status? How do I restore them back to, to the community that is school? Um, I tell my, my committee members as we go to make decisions on, on consequences for students, they have to have a path that allows them to be restored back as they, like they were before they, they broke the rule. If we don't create a path for restoration, we failed at our job. Our job as adults is to give them that path to being restored. And really, that's what Ed did for me at camp, is he walked me through how to, to fix what I had broken. Um, the second is to, to realize that every time I work with somebody, I have an opportunity to teach them uh, if they want it. And you have to want it. If you don't want to learn, you don't want to be taught things, then I'm not going to waste my time and energy with you because it's not going to do either of us any good. 
I'm going to put out a bunch of energy trying to teach you how to do something. And you're going to put out a bunch of energy trying to ignore me uh, and do things your own way. So you have to, to choose to invest that, that time equity because you only have so much time in people who want and are interested in it. And it is always worth taking the time to help somebody learn how to fix their mistake. Um, and so I think that's, those are the two things that I've taken from Ed that I've applied to, to my everyday job. Uh, I'm not running maintenance crews. I'm not, you know, having to teach kids how to, you know, drive a manual transmission vehicle. Uh, I didn't know how to drive a manual transmission vehicle till I got to camp. Um, I learned how to run heavy machinery. I learned how to, to, to weld. I learned how to do basic plumbing and basic electrical and basic carpentry and uh, masonry and all these different things I learned from Ed and from Scott um, because I was interested in learning. And they took advantage, um, or I should say, I took advantage of their willingness to teach me. And so um, as I do my job, whether it's being at school, if there's a kid that's like, I want to figure out how to do insert thing. And if it's something that's in that wheelhouse that I know how to do, it's like, okay, great. Let's, let's work on learning how to do that. Let me teach you. Um, I'll walk alongside you. I won't do it for you, but I'll show you how to do it. Um, so that's how I've applied that into my life. I might be moving to a different question, but uh, is now you've moved around a lot of diff different jobs and different camps that you've worked at. Are you, what are your views on traveling and exploring the world, going do from it. place to place? Just do get, it. Get the heck out and do it. Um, now, why is that important so, to you? So you, know, you can kind of talk about those impactful moments to give you another one. Talking about travel, it kind of reminds me. Um, when I was in high school, I got a chance to go to the Dominican Republic um, on a couple of mission trips. We did dental um optical and medical uh, clinics in the, the rural parts of the Dominican Republic. Um, we were on the Haitian border, uh, got to step into Haiti kind of illegally jumping across the river and back and forth, which is kind of fun. Um, but you learn international travel is immensely important because you, it gives you an understanding that we are living, that the, the world is much bigger than what you're, what's in your backyard. I grew up in, in middle of nowhere, Michigan, um, about an hour and a half north of Detroit and out in the middle of nowhere, uh, swamps all around our house. And until that point, my view of the world, I mean, yeah, I can go look at a globe, but you don't really have any understanding of what that means. And you get on a plane for, I forget how many hours, and now you're down, you're riding a bus in this completely foreign place um where we were at you had to brush your teeth out of a water bottle because you couldn't drink the water um and the shower was was literally a hose from a ceiling um you're like oh my running water that i have at home is really nice it's even hot um you understand, you, you gain a better understanding of the fact that even though these people are, are so far away, they're really no different than I am. And I think that's really important for us to understand that we're part of a much bigger global community and travel allows you to do that. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier, I just got back from Madrid I was there for a training trip. I'm taking a group of, of students and a couple older people um, on a trip to Europe here in March for spring break. And so I will um, we'll be taking a group, about 38, 39 people in the group. And we'll be going to um, England, France, um, Belgium, and Germany. And for some students, this will be the first time they've left the country. Um, they've never left the greater Seattle area. And you get over there and, and 
it's different language. I mean, outside of England, obviously England's going to have similar language, but uh, you're going to interact with people who don't speak the same language you do, but you can still figure out how to communicate. And, you know, walking, I've never been good at Spanish. I'm terrible at Spanish. Uh, I like to tell people I can speak two languages, sarcasm and English. And English is a stretch. So (laughs) um, Spanish is tough. But I'm walking the streets of Madrid and I can still figure out how to talk to a person at that, you know, little restaurant so I can figure out what to eat because I'm hungry and I want to eat. So um, point and guess. <laughs> and it's amazing how much pointing can get you. Uh, but you begin to realize that this world that we live in is a much bigger place and a much more interconnected place. There's so much more that is similar that we have in common than not. And so I think when we, we understand that, it allows us to better interact with other people. Uh, I think it allows us to become more compassionate when we've had the opportunity to to travel and to see other ways of life, um, to recognize that there is no one way. Uh, there is no, quote, right way to live. Um, there is no one right political system. Um, it, it all depends on a lot of different different elements that are there within that culture, that society, uh, to allow them to function. So. Uh, I think the more somebody can get out and travel, the better off they are, even within the United States. Um, I, I said I grew up in Michigan. I lived in, in Lincoln, Nebraska for six years. Uh, and then I've, I've lived out here in Washington for now uh, about eight years. And very different um, places to live just in terms of the way that that group of people live. Um, Nebraska is incredibly open. Um, just, just some of the most friendly people that I've met. Washington has been a place where uh, when we first got here, it was not cold, but, but people were very hesitant to like, want to get to know you. And like once you kind of, oh, yeah, you've been here, you've been here for a long time. Okay, now we'll start to get to know you. And um you know, the each each region of the United States is very different in, in that kind of feeling and that um, regional culture, if you will. And so traveling across the U.S., I would tell you to do it in a heartbeat. Um, if you can travel internationally, you should absolutely take every opportunity you can to, to do that. Um, educational trips have allowed me to, to spend time in Greece, to spend time in Italy, to spend time in Peru, uh, Dominican Republic, Haiti. Madrid most recently. Um, and each of those experiences, you come away with a better understanding of the world that we live in. Here's, here's, the, here's the advice I give to, to anybody who's listening to this. Love life without regret. Take advantage of the opportunity to get to know people, to experience things that are outside of your normal comfort zone. Understand that your family doesn't have to be restricted to a set of rules. Um, Live fearlessly. And go have fun in life. (laughs) And I think that's a great way to end this out. Thank you so much for coming on. It was amazing. Yeah, thanks for the time, guys. I I enjoyed chatting with you. Well, before we do the final send-off i want to thank uh two people of course uh nadia diaz who did our podcast cover art uh her instagram is at art head creations no space no capitals that is at art head creations on instagram and the link will be in the description the other person i want to thank is jensen crawl who made our intro and outro for this podcast uh he just uh released a demo for a musical he's working on. The song is called Knocking on Doors uh, for the, his musical that he's been working on for a couple years now called Tea Time. You can find uh, the song Knocking on Doors on Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon Music. Uh, that link to the song will also be in the description. Um, but thank you again, Joe, for coming on and uh, talking about 
being kind of a grown up and um, <laughs> talking about family and who you want to be and such. Um, but thank you anyways. Uh, thank you everybody for listening to Waiting for Seconds. We will see you on the next one. Take care. See you next time. Have a good one.